I was recently asked to speak to a group of engineering students at my alma mater, the University of Florida, about my career in engineering and the lessons I learned as a technical leader. In this latest episode of the Riding Shotgun podcast, I discuss my career journey from getting started as a software engineer to my time as the Chief Technology Officer of Intercontinental Exchange and the leadership lessons I learned and applied to create a culture of high performance and build a tech startup into the largest financial markets operator in the world. Welcome to the Tech Rides podcast, where we feature inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from top business leaders while riding in a cool car. I'm your host, Edwin Martial. If you would like to see the videos and cool cars we feature on the show, sign up and watch at techrides.io. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for the, uh, the int- introduction. It's great to be back and and it's always great to talk to uh, UF students as an alumni. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm Edwin Martial. I was the founder and chief technology officer for a company called Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE as, a, as we call it. It's a company that uh, we started here in Atlanta, Georgia as a small startup with five people about 20 years ago. That company now is uh, 6,000 people. It's the parent company for the New York Stock Exchange. It's one of the largest financial market operators in the world. And it's a Fortune 500 company. It's valued over $60 billion today. Uh, I designed, I went there to, to work at a startup and I designed and built the original trading platform. We started out uh, building it for uh, energy trading, uh, uh, commodities, particularly uh, electricity, moved on to natural gas and then uh, oil eventually. Um, I managed a team of over 400 people. And uh, in 2013 is when we acquired the 225 year old icon, the, the New York Stock Exchange, which is really kind of uh, an, an unheard of thing. I mean, we, we had been in existence at that point for 15 years and while the NYSC had been around for 225 years. Pretty incredible. Yeah, and we, we, you know, I, we always thought, I always thought that, we, that they might buy us one day and we, people usually get it backwards. They think that, that we were acquired by them, but, but it was the other way around. Um, and so I was there for 18 years at ICE from that startup phase to, to, to 2014 is when I left. And I, you know, I'd been there 18 years and I, I left to really pursue other interests and, and, and kind of just have a little more freedom in my schedule. And so today I run three different businesses. I, I do, I, I advise and invest in a lot of early stage companies, startups are here and around Atlanta, but also in New York and Florida. Um, and I also do some consulting. I help develop uh, a lot of startups. So we built a couple of platforms for, for some of the companies. And uh, I have a small team from some ex-ICE folks and, and others that, that we help build uh, technology platforms. And then as Bill mentioned, uh, I do host and produce a show called Tech Rides. And if you've ever seen Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is the, the Seinfeld show, or something like uh, Carpool Karaoke, it's similar. We get in a cool car and we, I get a, a business leader, an entrepreneur, a CEO, and we talk about you know, a lot of things that we're gonna talk about today, how they built their business, how, what, what they think about leadership and entrepreneurship and, and, and technology. And so that's at techrides.io. So what I was gonna to do today is really, you know, uh, talk about kind of my career journey and the kind of the leadership lessons that I've learned along the way and the, the principles that I kind of go by um, th- that I've learned over the, the you know, the past uh, 20 something years, 25 years, I don't know how long it's been uh, since I left UF. But I, I did go to UF, I graduated in 1992. 
when I was at UF, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, honestly, I was pre-med for a while. I was mechanic, mechanical engineering for a while. Didn't do so well there for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and so, you know, after four years at, at Florida, I found myself with enough credits to graduate, but they were all in disparate uh, majors. So I didn't have enough in the same major, so I, I couldn't graduate. Uh, and I was in the engineering program at the time. Uh, my grades had dropped and long story short, I had a dropout. I dropped out of school uh, and went back to Florida, to Miami and where I grew up and um, spent a year there working until I decided that, you know, uh, the entire time I was at Florida, I was working at the, the CSE lab as a helping um, students with other students with their their labs and things like that. And and I had always, you know, had a an ability to write code and had, had been learned since I was young, but I never considered it as a career. So when I had when I dropped out, I went back to school after a year, I decided I wanted to go back and, and major in computer science. And I was like I said, I was on, on academic probation, uh, but I went back, finished, uh, you know, did well. Once I transferred into and changed to computer science, I, I did well. I graduated in two years, and then I came out in '92, as I said. And and um, in '92, there was a uh, recession, so there weren't a lot of offers. I remember interviewing companies like Procter and Gamble and IBM, getting turned down by by just about all of them. I, I did I did land a job at Harris Corporation in Melbourne and worked there for four years, and it was a great experience. Uh, very very rigid engineering structured. I learned a lot from a lot of seasoned engineers. Uh, I remember we used to have these code reviews on everything we wrote and I'd get hammered all the time until I really learned uh, how to do things right. And um, it was a good experience, but after four years, I, I realized I really wanna do something different. Harris is a very big uh, company. It was about 30,000 people when I was there in, in Melbourne. And, and I wanted to go somewhere where I could, you know, as part of that team at Harris, I remember I was on a team that we wrote um, we were building SCADA systems for uh, kind of utility management systems. If, if you ever watch The Simpsons, it's kind of the thing that Homer Simpson sits in front of. And I worked on a project. There were 200 other uh, software engineers who wrote millions of lines of code over four years as a group. And we never saw the product ship. Uh, I think it shipped about a year or two after I left. Uh, and I wanted to go somewhere where I could, you know, make a difference, uh, see the impact of the work that I was doing, and and uh, and and that's why I started to look at going into a startup. So I interviewed all over the place. I found this uh, small startup in Atlanta, and that's where I, when I came to to live up here. And so one of the first lessons I just want to cover there, and something I think about is, you know, like I mentioned when I when I was at Florida and when I got out. I, there was, I got turned down by several companies and, you know, and I think back, you know, getting turned down, it doesn't, it doesn't feel great. You know, rejection is always difficult. I was talking to a, 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 a student um, at UF today, who's kind of moved to Atlanta. He's looking for a, he's going to be looking for a job this summer here. And he, he, he wanted some advice and he, he was getting some rejection letters. And I said, look, don't worry about it. Those things happen for a reason. Uh, you know, when I think back, um, and I think, okay, I could have gone to uh, Ohio and worked at Procter and Gamble or IBM somewhere. You know, those are fine companies, but honestly, it I, it cringes me inside thinking what could have been if I would have ended up at one of those places because um, the way things worked out, I, I wouldn't change uh, a thing. You know, when I was at actually in high school, I was turned down by. I remember going to a uh, 
college recruiting uh, event and there was different schools there. I remember going up to the guy from Duke and, and, and I told him I wanted to be an engineer and he almost laughed at me when I told him what my, uh, my current um, SAT score was at the time. And he said, yeah, well, you're probably not gonna be an engineer at Duke. And I, you know, those little things uh, happen all the time. Uh, at ICE, when we were building our company, uh, there was many times when people would tell you, um, tell us that, you know, we were building this thing and, it, and they, in the early days, people weren't interested in the product we were building and would, and would kind of like say, no, that we're not going to work with you guys. You guys are just some small startup. Uh, why would we work with you? I remember one guy telling me, you're, you're not Microsoft. So you, you get these things happen all the time. You just have to learn. Uh, for me, they kind of motivate me and inspire me. Uh, but you got to just realize that sometimes these things happen for a reason and, and you got to take it with a grain of salt. The, um, by the way, the Duke story, uh, I always remember that one. And uh, when we bought the New York Stock Exchange, our current president at the time was a Duke alumni. And I remember being asked by Duke to go speak at their uh, at some kind of innovation and entrepreneurship uh, event they were hosting, um, which always made me laugh a little bit inside thinking about it. But, um, you know, another thing I'll say, so I, I went from, you know, one of the things I, I tell a lot of people coming out of school is, you know, for me, I, I, and like I said, I went to a big company, Harris, before I, I, I ended up going to a startup. I think startups are amazing. You know, you, you, you learn so much and there's so much, uh, you know, the reason I went there is because I wanted, I wanted to create something. I wanted to build something. I want to make something that, that I could uh, call my own. And, but, you know, that experience that I had going to Harris or to a big company and getting that structure before I went to that startup was really invaluable. So I really kind of recommend that to a lot of people. I mean, I know there's a ton of startup companies out there today. It's, it's more, much more in vogue than, than when we were doing it um, 20 years ago, but, but, you know, going to a, a bigger company, getting that foundation, uh, especially in engineering can be really valuable uh, when you're getting started out. So, um, I'm just going to kind of cover some other kind of, again, leadership principles that I kind of got go by that, uh, you know, I've learned over the years, uh, especially just at ICE, uh, building, building a team and building a product. And one of the biggest things is, you know, for us, we, we, one of our biggest mantras, we, we always set huge goals. We had tremendous goals out from the very beginning. You know, we were, you know, from the very outset when we were just five or six people, we're like, we're going to, we're going to go public. We're going to build up the, the first, uh, new U U exchange in, in the United States uh, at the time. We were competing with Enron pretty much right out of the gate. Uh, we competed with the New York Mercantile Exchange. We, 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 I set a goal personally uh, on the technology in, in the middle 2000s to create the world's fastest trading platform. When, and that was at a time when we were struggling for, you know, to scale and perform. Um, and, and I remember gathering my team that we're gonna create the fastest trading platform in the world. And, and we did in our space. Uh, in a couple of years after that. Um, so ha setting big goals, uh, I think is, is really kind of one of the, the keystones, at least to, to our success when we, with what we were building. And I still believe in that today. Uh, and I, and I, a lot of times when I advise startups, I, I kind of try to push them because a lot of times they don't either have a goal or their goals are really small. And I think that's important too, because it's what motivates people. I mean, the kind of people that are going to be voted, you know, to me, that's what motivated, motivated me to go to a startup, go to ICE, is to really, you know, I wanted to change something. I wanted to make something, uh, you know, that would be tremendous, not just kind of go in and, and, and just work somewhere and punch a clock, uh, which is why I went to, to a startup. Uh, one of the big things I believe in is, is hiring the best people. Uh, we, um, you know, I'm a big believer that 
you know, it's not about pedigree or where you went to school or your degrees, or your background. It's really about skill set. And, and it's really important to hire the very best people, uh, especially in engineering. And it's about, and there's a, you know, uh, a book, uh, Good to Great, talks about how, how great companies are made. And one of the key uh, tenants in there is getting the right people on the bus. And I think that's so important, you know, to me, you know, we, you know, another part of that is, you know, we didn't, you know, I would try to hire people that could fit, that, that had the right skills, that were smart, uh, but I could work as a team and then no jerks. And getting the right people together is really the, a critical part of building any, any, especially any kind of startup or any kind of new business and, and really any business, because, um, you know, I'm a big believer that one, one like great engineer is worth, you know, 10 average engineers. Um, and again, that goes back to skill set. Uh, it also, you know, having one mishire, you know, we, we, um, when I was at ICE, we developed a process to really vet and interview and vet, uh, people that we were hiring because, you know, um, one bad hire can really kind of mess things up and set you back. I remember in the very early days when we were building the company, I we were working, you know, we had breakfast, uh, lunch and dinner at the office, you know, 6.30 came around and we were ordering dinner because we were all going to be there till nine, 10 o'clock every night. And, you know, that's typically, you know, I was writing code review or writing code in the morning and the afternoon, doing designs, meeting with my team, and then interviews and hiring, we would push off to the nighttime. So I'd be interviewing people like seven o'clock, eight o'clock. And I remember that worked out really well. I hired some really tremendous people doing it that way. It was more kind of a seat of the pants process, but, you know, made some mistakes there in hiring as well. And I remember one mishire where um, it cost us a lot of, you know, it cost us probably a few months uh, on, on, a, on a pretty major project that we're trying to achieve. And so, so that's when I developed a system of how to, you know, kind of really interview, how to screen people and um, expanded it beyond not just myself, but, but including my whole team and having like multiple people interview people. And, and we set a process together. And ever since then, we, we, we didn't have any, any more mishires, but really important to hire the best people, develop a process to identify skills, identify talent and identify the people that not just that are, you know, it's not just about skills and talent, but it's also about the people that are going to fit and work together as a team. And to that, you know, another, another big part of that is rewarding your very best people. We, we had a process at ICE that's a little controversial. It's called stacked ranking where you would rank people uh, at the end of the year, at the end of the year, a review process would be on a one to four basis. And it's kind of on a curve scale. So your best performers might be a four, and or in, we, we, in our case, we had three and a half, which was the next best. You know, so the top 5% would be fours, next you know, 10% would be three and a half, then 20% would be threes, all the way down to like one. And the purpose for that whole thing was to identify your very best people and make sure that you incentivize them and rewarded them. So we would give those people, for example, the, the highest bonus uh, at the end of the year, the biggest raises, the, the biggest stock equity grants, because we wanted to make sure that we rewarded them, kept them, uh, and that's so down on the line. Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, if you were ranked at the bottom end, a one or one and a half, or even later on a two, uh, you might be, you would probably be let go. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, and that might sound harsh, but really, um, I think it's a key to success. You have to identify, you know, we believe strongly that you identify your very best people, you reward them, and then you got to get rid of other people who aren't, who aren't um, meeting expectations. And, and it's important because, you know, especially in our case, or if you're asking, you know, like I said, in the very early days of our business, we were really 
busting our butts and you're asking people to do a lot of work, you know, work weekends, work nights. And if other people aren't doing that um, to meet that expectation, or they're just, you know, they're just not doing their work effectively, then you're really keeping them around is really hurting those other people that are. And that's kind of where, you know, letting people go and firing people, that's, you know, I had to do that early on and it was tough uh, as a, you know, kind of a new manager in the, in the beginning of my career. It was difficult. It's always difficult to, to let people go and fire them. But, but you know, what made me start to be comfortable is that it, it, it was one, it was understanding this, this, that you're really rewarding and, and helping the rest of the team that is busting their butts, that is, is working hard and is doing the things the right way. And, and keeping people that aren't is just gonna hurt those people. And, you know, we, we set goals as a company and as a team that we're gonna to benefit everyone. We were, another part of this is, that we, you know, everybody at our company had equity. So uh, I would hire people and I would tell them, you know, here's your equity, that basically your interest in the company and your job, it's, you know, it's worth, you know, the stock option or stock might be worth X at that time. So, you know, it's your, your strike price is this or whatever. And your job is to make this stock more valuable, not just for me or the directors or the management team, but for yourself, because everybody was an owner. And so all these things, by the way, all these things, by the way, tie together in, in your company culture, you know, uh, the expectations of setting the big goals, uh, how you how you incentivize and reward your best performers, getting rid of people who aren't the best performers, um, everybody having ownership, and all those things when you tie it together, you know that really is your culture. And we we were big believers in this uh, something that I think it was um, Jack Welsh pioneered. And he would say that you don't manage people, you manage the culture. And if you manage the culture, the culture will take care of the rest, right? You don't, you don't, I'm not, I'm especially not a big believer in micromanaging people. I never wanted to do that. Uh, we just wanted to set goals, hire good people and expect that we would, we would deliver, right? As a team. And that actually, uh, I, I had a question in relation to the culture, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. So where do you draw the line, I guess, between rewarding your best workers and and kind of making it too competitive of an atmosphere if that makes sense yeah yeah that's a good it's a, it's a good question look I, I i we didn't we we competitive is an interesting word because i'm i'm a competitive guy and, and i i but when i was competing when i think about competing and how we competed we competed as a team as a company right not against each other and that's a really important distinction because we set goals for the entire team and the entire company that we were trying to achieve together. And so that is like partly what I'm saying is that you're gonna set those expectations of the culture. Like this is what's expected of us as a team to achieve. So you're not trying to necessarily see, be, I'm gonna be smarter than this person or smarter than that person. Uh, but it's really about working as a group Okay, and, it, and I'll give you an example. So I mentioned we had a pretty intense interviewing and hiring process. It was pretty long and involved, you know, phone screens and, and written tests and multiple interviews. And, um, and at the end of that, what I would do is I would always be the last interview. So I'd have everybody would go through like, you know, they would meet six or seven people. And this stems from that 
process where I had a bad hire early on that I told you we changed our whole process. So at the end of that process, I would say, I want to hire, you know, this is that this is the new process. And what I, one of the things I wanted to do is say that I would bring in, you know, six or seven people met a candidate. I would bring those six or seven people in and they would tell me how the interview went. And I wanted it to be pretty much unanimous or near unanimous that they all wanted to hire this person. Other, you know, if they might, and every once in a while, if so, if two people said, you know, seven people met him, two people say, no, we don't like this person, then we would, we wouldn't hire him. But if one person didn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't a fan for whatever reason, didn't go well, then, then I would kind of probe into that. And then sometimes we would also not hire him or not move ahead. Or if, if they, if they did, uh, and sometimes I would just find out like, here's why they didn't like him. And I would kind of probe that, that reasoning. But in that process, a couple of things that I discovered. One is the people that would go through that process at the end of it, they would be so grateful that we took such a careful, thoughtful process and they got to meet all these people and they understood like that, that you know, uh, they met all these really intelligent people, really challenging questions, and they, they were grateful to have gone through it and come out of that. But more importantly, what I, what I learned is when I went in that meeting and, and somebody was really great, everyone in that room was excited to have this person on board. Everyone would be like, you got to hire this person. They're great. They're really going to help us. No one was like, this person is smarter than me. This person is going to take my job. This person is going to do X, which would be a, a competitive thing, right? Like, and I, and I, when I, I remember when, when, when I was interviewing before I went to move to Atlanta, when I, after Harris, I interviewed about 30 places before I decided where I wanted to go. Um, and I, and I remember going to interviews where people were, I could tell that that was their culture. Like they were trying to make it so that, um, they could show that they were smarter than me. Like engineers would give me these crazy, you know, interview questions on a blackboard or whiteboard. And they're like, go figure this out. And, you know, you can't figure it out. Uh -huh. You know, so it was like, it was this competitive thing where they were truly trying to, you know, not find out what you could do, contribute, but really just trying to be show that they were smart because, because they had a culture like you're, you're in your question. It's a very good one. It was a competitive culture internally. Whereas what we were building was a competitive culture as a team against what we were trying to do, achieve, or our competitors, right? And the, one of the reasons that works is because every, again, everyone in the company had equity. This is why this is so important. Everyone in the company had equity in the company, ownership in the company. So as the company achieved more and more and more, and we, you know, knocked it out of the park a thousand times at ICE, everyone was benefiting. So when somebody was interviewing somebody and they said, okay, this person is really great and they're really smart and they're probably smarter than me. It wasn't a threat to them. It was a, it was like, Hey, this is going to help us all succeed. And this is going to help my equity be more valuable to me. Right. So that's what that, that's why that is so important. And by the way, I hired tons of people that were smarter than me and I look for them. And I was, you know, the, my job wasn't to be the smartest coder anymore, the smartest developer, the smartest engineer. It was to pull these people into, and I was pretty good, but I would pull these people in. My job was to pull them all together and make them work as a team towards these goals. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? It does. I mean, you sound hesitant because uh, this is important. So if you have a follow-up, go it's, ahead. I mean, I, I kind of completely get where you're coming from, but I'm also thinking the, the whole directly having a, top performer gets the most reward versus bottom gets the worst it just feels like that would automatically turn it into a competitive atmosphere but i i 
I, I haven't really worked in a startup before. And so I wouldn't know as much. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's, no, it's, it's absolutely a controversial thing. Like I said, when I started stack ranking, if you, you just Google it, you'll see that there's, there's a lot of people who, who don't like it. Um, and for some of the reasons you're saying, I, I just can tell you from experience that it worked really well for us. It did not, I, you know, I don't believe it. It didn't have that effect uh, in terms of people competing with others because they didn't know when we didn't publish, like, here's the rankings. Like, it's not like your grades, like here's what everybody's grades. Right. So they, they were, we would tell an individual, you know, if they want to know that here's your ranking. Right. And he would tell them, obviously, here's your, your, your equity and your bonus and all that. So they would know themselves, but they wouldn't, it wasn't like they would see other people. Now everybody, and, and, and the reality is in any company, and by the way, at this time we're doing this, we're like hundreds of people, we're, you know, we're, we were doing it past our IPO. So we're already, we're past the startup stage. Uh, we're a pretty major company uh, in the industry at the, you know, I mean, we started with when we were very small, but we continued it, um, I mean, I think we were still doing it when I left. So for, you know, 15 something years later, but um, so it doesn't, it, it wasn't just a, a, a startup thing, but the point is I, I saw it work. It was very effective. And again, the biggest thing is rewarding those people that are, that are really getting the work done and identifying um, those people that aren't. And the reality is a lot of companies, you know, who those people are anyway, you may not put a number on it. You put it, you, we, we formalize the process to identify everybody and, and, and compare them against each other. But we, um, you know, in, in most companies, people know who the best performers are and who the worst performers are. The problem is most companies, they just let the worst performers stick around for, you know, so many years. And, and most of those companies, they, over time, they become average companies because they're full of a lot of average or poor performance. And that's the unfortunate um, truth of it. I mean, I'm very intrigued in, in how you made this work so elegantly. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's a, it's a very subtle thing. Uh, it's also part of the DNA. Again, it's a part of the culture. And it's also part of the, I think it's also factors in the kind of people you hire. I mean, we were looking for, we were changing the world. Like people say, you know, these startups, you know, we're going to change. Like we literally did change the way that the entire financial system worked. It used to be that you would go and, you know, if you wanted to go and, and trade uh, stock, or, or commodities or whatever, you know, people are yelling and screaming in a big room. Uh, we moved all of that to the internet and electronic trading uh, over the period of years and um, completely transformed an industry. So, and that was what was motivating to, to, to all of us is, is the change we were bringing about. But let me, let me move on. We can uh, talk about some more of that later. Um, you know, earlier, uh, Deb was talking about, you know, uh, uh, emotional intelligence. And, and one of the things that struck me and I was, I was listening to her is like, you know, one of the things I always thought about too is, is understanding the people that I manage, you know, knowing their, their strengths and how, and, and, and how they, they react and what inspires them, what it motivates them, how to give them coaching. I think it's really important. I, I, uh, I played sports uh, my whole life, baseball, mostly I managed teams and led teams there. And I think they're very similar how you lead a, a whether it's a sports team or a, a uh, a business team, you know, you're going to, you need to identify kind of like how someone is going to respond, how they want to be motivated, how they want to be coached. There's some people that you kind of like, you want to pick them up, brush them off, you know, encourage them, let them know it's going to be okay. And, and they'll respond that way. And some people you have to kind of, you know, 
in a way get get a little more direct and and kind of get in their face and be like hey this is this is this isn't working out this way and here's what we need to do to fix it so i think it's really important to understand how the people around you respond and and how they're going to be motivated and having that understanding and intelligence will make you a better leader um all right um empathy is a big you know uh, i think that was some of that as well empathy is a big thing you know uh, um you know i'll give you an example um you know we had at ice uh, it, and this is you know several years ago so things are different now and, and obviously in today's world but we had a pretty strict no work from home policy everybody met and had to be in the office all the time um we also had a and, and this is part of the, our culture we believed in you know people are more effective in in face-to-face -face settings uh, we also believed because of that, that you needed to be in one of our main offices, whether it was Atlanta, New York, Chicago. Um, and I had a, a, an excellent engineer uh, who was from the Ukraine and he uh, came to me one day and he basically turned in his resignation. And he, and he was, you know, I mentioned that the one through four scale. So this guy had been a, a four ranking top, you know, top, top ranking for se several years, just an outstanding engineer. And he was resigning, and I said, "Well, what, what's going on?" He said, "Well, his his mother had just passed away, and his dad was sick, and he did not want to be. He wasn't there when his mom passed away, so he wanted to be with his father in case that happened. And he was moving back to the Ukraine, and he knew that we had this no work from home, and you couldn't. We didn't have an office in the Ukraine, so he knew that based on the culture that he couldn't stay. And I said, "Okay, well, hold on a minute, Let me, you know." uh we definitely don't want to lose you and you're you're you know and, and you're and i and definitely not for this reason i mean he wasn't leaving the company because he wasn't happy or he wanted to find a new thing he was leaving because of this family uh issue so i said hold on and i went and talked to our ceo and coo and really battled with them for a period of two weeks on this uh back and forth and my argument was yes we had all these strict rules about you know you, you had to be in, a, in an ice office and you had to be you couldn't be working from home and you couldn't be a contractor and all these things and i said well we got to make some exceptions we, we can't be so rigid that we can allow some of the very best people to that are, have these kind of circumstances you know we're asking these people to do so many things uh we have to make some exceptions and i luckily i won that battle it was a tough one but we adapted and we we kept him on board and he went to the ukraine and unfortunately we did have to he had he became a contractor but uh he was there another 10 years i think he still might be there and this goes back to just kind of like you know being empathetic you know listening to people and trying to and not being too rigid where you can't adapt and make things work uh um for the, especially for some of your best people and especially when when there's circumstances that are really you know more about life than 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 business um communication is important you know i always believe that you know we set like i said we set big goals i would say okay i would you know establish a plan here's what we want to do here's the plan here's what what i expect of, of people um you know and you know you you, you know that the whole thing you praise in public you reprimand in private totally believe in that um and one other thing I'll talk about is diversity, because I remember last time I, I spoke to uh, a group similar to this last semester or last year, somebody asked a very good question about diversity and they said, how did, how did you ensure diversity? And, and I'll tell you, you know, my goal building my team was to build the very best team I could. And it was because I really wanted to win. I wanted to build 
you know, we were trying to achieve some tremendous goals. Like I said, uh, you know, we were competing with, you know, we were competing with Enron. We were, we were a startup. Enron at the time was the eighth largest company in America. Uh, you know, we, we bought the New York Stock Exchange. We went, we had a huge IPO. We, we always had these crazy goals. Um, and so I wanted to have the very best team I could possibly have in order to achieve these goals. And I can tell you, uh, and, and I didn't care, you know, what your background was, like I said earlier, I didn't care where you went to school. I didn't care what kind of degree you had. I, we, we had figured out a process to, to evaluate engineers as, as, as um, skill set and team players and, and all that. And I, you know, when, when at the end of this, through this interview process, I mean, the process we had, I didn't set any goals to have any kind of diversity, but we ended up with the most diverse team you can imagine. We had people from all, all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds. Um, and that was really because, but, but again, but our focus was not on diversity, although that's what we ended up with. It was an, an actual skill set and value. And I think that if you focus on that, you will end up uh, with a diverse team if you, if you, if you do it properly. Okay. Uh, just a couple of other things I'll talk about. Uh, just things, you know, when you're building a product, you know, I, I always, you know, people always ask me like, how did you guys make ice? How did you make the plus the company and the business so successful? And, and I think really we, the, the secret, there's no real secret. I mean, there's, I think this culture thing I discussed is, is a big part of it and, and the people we had, but, but, you know, we just came in every day and just made improvements every day, just, you know, chop wood every single day. You know, there's always going to be tons of things you can make better. We were obsessive about making things, just improving them and making them better. Uh, we also didn't do things just because it was a way they were always done. We, we thought differently and tried to do things differently. And partly that was because a lot of us, we were building uh, trading platforms and, and energy, and none of us really had a background in that. We were just kind of like figuring it out and thinking this is how best we would do it. And sometimes that not having that experience can be a benefit because you don't do things the way everyone's always done it. Uh, like I said, we would, we would focus and manage your team for, for results. Um, and, and the other part of that, and when, when you're doing pro, you know, the process is always a big question. Like, how do you, how do you go about building a process or how do you build things? And, you know, we had enough process to, to get the job done. You know, a lot of times there's so much process and I see this even in smaller startups where they, they over process things that the process is not the product. So don't over-focus on process. The, the, the goal is to get out whatever it is you're trying to achieve, your product, your, your goal. The, the process is not that. So have just enough process to meet your goals and, and, and be effective, but don't, don't overly go all in on process because that's not really what you know, pays the bills. Um, I think ultimately, you know, when I, you know, I think work ethic is, is so important as a, as a young engineer, when you get out there, just really, um, you know, uh, working hard, learning your, your skill, being good at your skill. I think, you know, for me, I really focused early in my career on, on skills first, uh, and an industry second. I didn't, I, I really wanted to have transferable skills that I could adapt and, and take anywhere that I went. Um, another big thing that, that, you know, I think happens to every engineer at some point when you go from being an individual contributor to a manager, uh, you have to make that decision, you know, like I had to make a decision, like, you know, in the very early days when I was at ICE, I was writing a lot of code and was hiring people, but I was still, you know, writing code, doing designs. Um, and I had to pull away from that over time because as my team got bigger, 
uh, it was impossible to also be, you know, in the middle, I either had to decide that, you know, I was going to be CTO and I was going to help build this team and manage it, which means I still would lead architectural decisions and things like that, but I couldn't be writing code every day because I would then be a bottleneck. So I had to make a choice. And I think it's a choice that a lot of engineers make at some point. Like, when do you switch from being an individual contributor to a kind of a manager or leader? And, um, and it's a difficult one. Uh, what I will say to that, I've, tell, I've coached other and, and other, other um, past uh, employees I had is, you know, you, 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 it's a transition you have to make and make it because you want to make it. You know, we, we, you know you, you, not everybody needs to be a leader or manager. Um, some people are tremendous engineers. And quite frankly, we wanted it to stay tremendous engineers because they were so valuable in that role. But if they really wanted to move on to leadership and management, then we would encourage that and we will help them make that transition. But um, one thing I will tell you is, is you always want to kind of keep your skills if you can, um, as long as you can. So even if you do transition to a leadership role, a management role, um, you know, in my case as an engineer or software engineer, I would always try to figure out some projects that I could do where I could still keep my skills fresh. And it might be something that maybe wasn't on the critical path or or something I would do on in the, on weekends or something, you know, because I, I thought that, you know, having that skill set and not losing it um, is important. It was important to me. Okay, so I think that that kind of wraps up my comments. Um, so I'll just stop yeah. there again, turn over to Bill. A lot, of, a lot of great messages in there and, and just sort of free form Q&A now and while those questions are forming, let's go back just to your our core sequence here sort of fashioned exactly as you talked about. We will try and talk about leadership things here that are relevant to a, an entry level engineer who's going into an individual contributor and starting to do a little leadership things. And then the switch flips and they're doing a lot of business stuff and less engineering. And, and so the course topics change in the second course. So when did that switch flip for you, time wise? Was that five years, seven years, 10 years, roughly? I mean, I, I, so I was always, I mean, I think very early on, I was, I was doing a lot of, you know, working in teams and I was leading teams, small teams, you know, three or yeah. four people on a project. So, but, but still, you know, I, you know, that might be 20% of my time and I was still just writing a lot of code and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I think it really switched um, probably, you know, at ICE and our, maybe in the, when, when we really got busy, uh, it was probably like, you know, we, we, we spent two years where we were just kind of like developing the code. And I would literally spend two years just coming in, putting on my headphones and writing code all day. And then when we really started to take off that first year where we went into production um, and I was, you know, hiring, the team was getting much bigger. And my responsibility was to kind of hire and manage that group um, and build it and kind of coach them and manage them. Those, that's when it started to slip, switch. And I realized like I couldn't do both anymore as much as I was. So I had to either pick one or not. I either, I wanted, either had to stay an engineer and a developer um, or I, if I was going to be CTO, I would have to make this choice and I would have to give up um, certain things. And so that was about... I mean, in my career, that was probably year, let's say seven for full-time, you know, um, of making that switch to kind of a more of a, you know, where 70, 80, 90% of my time was leading and, and managing. What other questions do you have for Mr. Marcio? 
you said that after you graduated, you went to a big company and then you went to a startup, correct? Right. So um, my question is, would you still recommend that new grads today, they hop onto a big company and then move on to a start, startup or should they start with a startup and and then see where they want to go from there? Yeah, I still I still recommend going to a bigger company because like I said earlier, you, you, you just get so much structure and you can learn from people that have been doing it for years. And I know that was really valuable to me is learning from these other people that had so much more experience. Um, you know, when you go to a startup, there's a lot of younger folks just like yourselves, which is great, but you're all kind of figuring it out together and there's not as much opportunity to, to learn from others. So, I mean, the world's changed though. There's so many, you know, great startups now. I mean, I, I think now it's almost a question. It's not, do I go to a startup or do I go to a big company? It's like, do I start one myself? Like that, you know, it's like, that's another thing you, you can think about. And, and I don't want to discourage that at all because I think there's, you know, ultimately that's, you know, you know, as you can see, the work I've been doing in the last several years since I left ICE is really all around startups as an advisor, investor, builder, you know, because that to me, that's what I'm passionate about. I like to create things. So I'm not trying to discourage anyone from that. If that's really what you want to do, go go for it. But I just think that um, there's just so much, it, it's just valuable to learn. Yeah, because, you know, when I went to Harris, uh, not only did I learn and I got some good structure on design and engineering and, and writing code, I also learned a lot of things I didn't want to do, frankly. I mean, there was a lot of things that I learned, like this is, I really don't like this about a big company, just the, the rigidness, the structure, the, the memos, the, you know, this, you can't only do the, the, the bands. I remember at one point at Harris, I was one of the, you know, um, most, I guess, you know, I was, I was doing really well and, and, but I could only get a, like a, a raise within a salary band. So even though I was running circles around people that had been there 10, 15 years, I was getting paid less because they had a structure that said, okay, you people who have been this, this many years can only get paid this much. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> so that's when I, when I went to my start, start I actually tripled my salary almost. Um, and it, and it, that's why I get back to, it doesn't matter. You know, that's why one of the things I took away. So I took all these ideas that I didn't like that I learned at this, big company and I flipped them. I switched them completely, you know, in terms of culturally, how I thought about how we worked and how the people, and, and I, again, not, not just, there were some good ideas as well and and how we did designs and structure and wrote code, but, but there was a lot of ideas in how the company was run culturally that I completely wanted to change. And that's what we did at ICE. That was helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. I had a question for you. So uh, in your opinion, what do you think, which sector is growing the most? And if you're looking for a startup, which sector would you think that people of our generation should look into? I, you know, that really comes down to, I would ask yourself, what are you most interested in? Like that, that's really the thing. Like, I think what you are most interested and excited about, that's where you're going to be most successful. Uh, that said, you know, um, just about any software platform. I mean, today software is still exploding. So, and every company has become software enabled, whether it's, you know, um, you know, there's a company called Lemonade. That's an insurance company, which you would say, oh, that's real boring insurance, but they're using AI to, to kind of um, reinvent and disrupt how insurance is being done. Um, so, you know, 
and, and then it becomes, it becomes an interesting question is, you know, is lemonade a software company or is it an insurance company? And the reality is it's a, it's a software, there's probably more software engineers at lemonade than there are, you know, business people, but, but it's, and it's similar at ice. We probably had, you know, 40, 50% of our staff was dedicated to building technology and software, but we were a financial markets exchange. So, um, you know, one of the reasons, by the way, I switched to when I switched, when I said I dropped out and I went back to school. And the reason I, I, I went into software engineering is because I felt like I could go in any industry that that was interesting uh, as because I knew this, the demand would be there. Or I felt the demand would be there back then. Um, so it really just depends. I mean, I think, you know, things that are interesting to me, like a, anything around that's kind of with AI is interesting, data, analytics. But again, the industries can be anything. Um, one industry that is kind of interesting right now is space. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in space, whether it's, you know, low Earth orbital satellites, uh, you know, obviously you have things like SpaceX, uh, Virgin Galactic, um, you know, NASA's doing some really cool things. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot more private space companies. Um, so that's kind of interesting, although that's kind of a niche one. But, um, you know, if it was me, that's kind of an area I'd be interested in right now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I was just kind of asking because, you know, you know, if somebody has an interest in some sort of field, but there's not really a definite future in there. Um, I don't know, me personally, I wouldn't really be drawn to a startup like that, because you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket, because you could get in with a startup, and then that sector just doesn't necessarily take off the way that you have planned it to be. Right, right. And, and, and startups are always going to be a risk. I mean, you know, one in a million startups goes public, for example. Um, at least that was used to be the old metric, you know, or, and, and not that everybody's trying to go public anymore, but there, there's a, there's way more failures than there are successes in startups. But that's also why I said earlier, you know, especially early in my career, I focused on skills versus industry experience. You know, I remember as a young engineer at Harris, I, I was all about learning how to write the best C code I could, or, or, you know, I didn't necessarily care about all the, I mean, I, I did, I mean, obviously to some level, but I wasn't all about all the ins and outs of how the business worked because, because I wanted to focus on the skills so that I could, if I did leave or didn't, didn't have to go somewhere else, I could transfer those skills anywhere. The skills are transferable. The industry knowledge sometimes uh, isn't unless you stay in that same industry. So as long as you do that, you know, if you go somewhere, it doesn't work out, you can go to the next one. Oh, uh, I have a question. Sure. So how did you, uh, you said skill set is very important. So how did you like develop your skill set after college? Did you do it through work or through individual projects? Well, for me, you know, I, one thing I learned and I, and I had been learned how to write code when I was like 13 years old, but I, I really felt like when I got out of school, like I felt like, man, I really don't know how to code. Uh, so I really learned again from, from working with these other engineers who had been doing it for so many years. And you learn about, you just learn about to think about things that you didn't really have to think about in a project, you know, things like how, you know, okay, you wrote this code, but how effective is it going to be when it has to scale and, and under, you know, you know, performance and things like that. So I learned from the people around me, which is again, why I said, was saying how important it is to go to an existing company. But the other thing is um, today though, that it's much easier because you have so many ways to learn well at least in in, in software i mean I, I don't know about other other disciplines as much um although i i imagine it's a little similar but you know if you want to learn how to code you know there's there's things like udemy and uh 
you know, Coursera and there's, you know, there's so many things on YouTube and, you know, I mean, there's from other experienced engineers. So, so you can really kind of brush up and, and hone your talents um, a lot easier today, I think, than, than any other time before. All right. Thank you. Sure. I have a question, more of a historical question, I guess. Um, but you mentioned that one of your competitors was Enron. Yep. So looking back on what happened with them and everything, um, is there anything, any anti-competitive behavior or anything that you um, didn't necessarily know about until after the fact that maybe stunted ICE's growth or anything like that? I mean, no, I mean, Enron, uh, not, nothing, I mean, nothing held our growth back. I mean, it was, if anything, it was, a, you know, this crazy rocket ship, but, but the, some thoughts on Enron in particular, though, it, it goes back to culture there. Like Enron was really a fascinating company in a lot of ways. And if, and, um, you know, there's def several documentaries and, and things about Enron and books. Uh, there's one called uh, I think the smartest guys in the room. And there's some other, they were really, really smart people. They were super arrogant also. And I know this from firsthand experience competing with them, working with them. Uh, we had several interactions with them and I, we were a startup, really intelligent group of people. They thought they were, they, the book called the smartest guys, they thought they were smarter than everybody. And in some ways they were, they were really brilliant actually in technology wise. Um, one thing Enron did, they were a catalyst for, for ICE in a, in a very important way. In the very beginning, when we were building our, uh, this trading platform, we were saying, okay, we're going to make it so you can trade electricity over the internet. And most people, and this is 1999, were like, no, no one wants to do that. It's, you know, the internet's too slow. It's not secure. You know, people were nervous about buying a $20 book on Amazon. Why would I ever put a million dollar trade on the internet? That's crazy. Uh, so we were going around trying to sell this. Um, and, and no one was interested back then. Um, Enron comes along in the fall of 2000 or no fall of 1999. And they launched a thing called Enron online. And it was the first electronic internet based trading platform for natural gas and, and electricity. And at this time, Enron is the eighth biggest company in America. So they were like, you know, they're like Walmart or something in terms of size and in terms of, you know, monetary value. Uh, super powerful and what they did is they scared everybody in the but they but the system that they built and this goes back to the, the arrogance the system they built you could only buy or sell to or from enron so it wasn't an open platform they were going to control the electricity markets and what that did is it, it did two things one it proved that yes you could trade electricity over the internet or natural gas but the other thing it did is it scared the crap out of everybody else in the industry because Enron wanted to dominate it. They were going to be like, where are they going to be the buyer and seller on every trade? What we were building was an open platform. So all the, you know, whether you, any, any utility, electricity company, any buyer or seller could interact with, with on our platform. Um, and so it was an open platform versus theirs was a closed platform. And ultimately, you know, a couple of years later, it came out that you know, they were doing some pretty sketchy things uh, financially, uh, and that, and they were also manipulating the power prices in California and doing a bunch of other kind of sketchy stuff. And that's why they ended up going out of business. But, but again, smart guys, bad culture, uh, and, uh, led to their demise. Yeah. It was interesting at the time they imploded uh, their, their top core values were respect, uh, integrity, communications, and excellence. And yeah. uh, that was, uh, sort of disconnected from the way they, you know, so it's getting, just as Edwin said, you know, cultures 
sort of reflect who they really are. And you can have all those great things on a website, but unless you believe what you say and people behave that way, it's just, there's this huge disconnect. And I don't know, I thought it was always ironic. Yep, yep. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. Anything else? No more questions? Well, Edwin, thank you so much for a fascinating lesson. Another great example of a Gator engineer who's had a, a really interesting engineering leadership career and still is. And um, tell me one, tell them one more thing about Tech Rods. They can go there, they can, can they see, hear the podcast and see videos or they have to sign up? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so if you go on techrides.io, um, that's, uh, there's, there's really, we've got a bunch of videos we've done rides with, you know, the, I did with the most recent with the COO of Delta Airlines. Uh, you know, I mentioned there already space earlier. One of the reasons I got interested in space is I did the, at the time, the CEO, today he's the chief space officer for Virgin Galactic uh, and some interesting stuff there. I, I, Jeff Sprecher, who's the CEO and founder and chairman of, of ICE and now the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, probably the most brilliant, um, you know, business person I've ever met. Uh, and I had the pleasure of working with him for you know, all those years at ICE. Uh, you know, we did a ride. He was actually my first guest and he, he just has tremendous advice. Uh, you know, Don Panos who's a legendary entrepreneur who uh, invented the nicotine patch and then got into automotive motorsports. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's just a gem of, of wisdom. So there's a lot, of, a lot of, you know, past interviews we've done. And again, it's about, um, you know, it's these CEOs, it's these entrepreneurs, it's these business guys, and, and they're telling about their, how what they believe and how they've been able to build their businesses. But there's also a podcast, so you can um, sign up for the podcast, uh, and we'll do some of the, the episodes there. And then uh, lately, I've been writing a lot of blogs about uh, if you're interested in what happened with Robinhood and GameStop. Uh, GameStop. There's a lot of inside. Um, to me, that that whole episode of what's happened earlier in the year. Has really been fascinating to watch, and it's a it's a great opportunity to understand how the markets work, the financial markets work, and the mechanics of the markets. And uh, I've been writing a lot about what really is happening behind the scenes, and why a lot of times things don't really they're not really what they seem, and what you what you see yeah. in the press is is really not what's happening. And and there's a reason that the markets work the way they work. Um, and so, but yeah, there you can. Go to techrides.io, sign up there, and you can get access to, to all of that. Edwin, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you continuing to, to participate with us here. And thanks again for carving out parts of your day. Uh, leadership and a word for you? Action. I remember you asked me this last time to think yeah. about it, and I really thought about it for a few weeks, and, and it was hard. But I ultimately, I think as a leader, there's a lot of things that, that really matter um, that we talked about today. But at the end, you really have to take an action. And, uh, and that's, to me, the most important one. Well, I think we'll call it a job well done. Thanks again. Right. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I certainly did. And Edwin, I'll talk to you a little bit later this All afternoon. Right. All right. Thanks, Bill. Go Gators. Thanks. Go Gators. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Rides podcast. If you like what you heard, please sign up at techrides.io and look for new podcasts and videos down the road. We will be releasing podcast versions of our past videos and also introduce new podcasts on a regular basis. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun.